Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. We finish out Sunday night with uh, a television production that I've been enthralled with and thought it was uh, a long time coming and has been very well presented. That would be The Last Dance on ESPN, chronicling of the final season of the Chicago Bulls, six championship runs in the 90s, um, and a look back on the building of that team to get to that final season. I've enjoyed it greatly. I know it's gotten a lot of uh, hype and publicity and uh, pomp and circumstance, and I think it's kind of earned it. I wanted to get some of the backstory and maybe uh, give those of you who've enjoyed it uh, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain because we're lucky enough to have with us uh, for the next uh, couple of minutes executive producer of The Last Dance, Mike Tolan, do- joins us here on CBS Sports Radio. Mike, Jody Mack here. How you doing, bud? Hey, Jody Mack. Nice to talk to you again. My pleasure. Uh, where were you in June of 1998? <laughs> uh, I was, wow. I was in Los Angeles, which is something I never thought would happen. Growing up in <laughs> Philly, went to college in the Bay Area, I learned to hate L.A. early and often. So if you'd have told me I'd end up raising my family in Los Angeles, I moved here in 90. Um, let's see, nothing going on much with Philly sports in the 90s. Gotcha. <laughs> the Sixers weren't competitive. The Phillies, you know, went from 93 to 08. Eagles were, yeah, you know, starting to turn around. Uh, AI had come into the league, and Croce and Larry were building that team that got to the finals in 01. But um, I guess the the right answer is I was thinking about uh, how great this film was going to be 22 years later. Yeah, as if, as if you knew that was going to be the case. <laughs> right. Um, how, well, then, the, of course, the next question is going to be, how did you get the gig? Well, it didn't come easy, as most good things in life don't, right? That's what I, that's what I teach my children, persistence and perseverance. Um, the first question is, how did it happen? Um, two guys, Andy Thompson, who was a field producer for NBA Entertainment, um, also happens to be Michael Thompson's brother and Clay Thompson's uncle. Great okay. guy. He's still actually at NBA Entertainment. He saw the handwriting on the wall, as you guys who've been watching the show know, um, a lot of infighting by then. Jerry Krause, Phil Jackson, at odds. Jerry tells Phil, you can go 82-0 and 0 in 97, 98, and that's still going to be your last year. So Andy said, this is going to be it. They're going to break this thing up. This is history in the making. Once in a lifetime, we got to shoot it. Went to his boss at NBA Entertainment. Happens to be Adam Silver, who right. is now in the big job. And um, Adam went to Reinsdorf, Krause, Jackson, went all the way to Michael, and uh, Michael said, okay, the deal was, look, if you let us shoot, Michael, we won't do anything with it until we mutually agree on something. We got to, you know, you have veto power. And if you don't do anything with it, worst case scenario, you have the best home movies ever. So Michael <laughs> smiled and said, okay. And then pretty much every year, the way the, the legend goes anyway, the NBA would go to Michael and say, all right, let's do it now. After he retired, 
came back after the Wizards. Let's do it now. He just didn't really want to do it for a lot of reasons. He's got, you know, he's a very, for a guy as famous as he has been for these last several decades, very, very private guy, as you guys in the media know. So he just kept saying no. And uh, I jumped into the fray in early 2016. Um, The journey continues to be long and arduous, but um, it took me about mm, six months from having a meeting in Toronto and working with Curtis Polk and S.D. Portnoy, who are his business partners. Um, we finally sat around a table, and it was June. And, uh, you know, the way the legend goes, the, 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 the day I get to Charlotte, um, the Cavaliers had just come back from down 3-1 to beat the Warriors for the 96 title. Um, Michael is uh, preparing for the draft. The Charlotte Hornets had, uh, like, a mid-first-round pick, and he was captive. And we had a nice long meeting, and he was really respectful and receptive and responsive. And um, at the end of the day, he shook my hand and said, let's do it. People, people want to know, wow, why do you say yes after all these years? I just think, you know, right time, right place. He's been out of the game for that long. He's got a new family. Um, as you can see from the series, he obviously is in a place in his life now where he's open, where he's willing to reflect, he's willing to say things he's never said before. I just think, you know, he got, he's, he's, you know, he's 57 years old now, and, uh, you know, we got lucky. When did you become part of the package with NBA Entertainment that they said, all right, we've all taken runs at him. Why don't you have a sit-down with Michael and see if you can talk him into this? Well, nobody asked me. <laughs> it wasn't like they called me up and said, hey, Mike, what? I, I love that scenario, but as an independent producer, I, I run a company called Mandalay Sports Media, with, actually with Peter Goober, who's a part owner of the Warriors. Um, and this is, you know, this is what we do. We did a doc on Iverson. We did a doc on, on Kareem. We did a Hank Aaron film and done a lot of movies, sports movies. Maybe you've seen some of them, whatever. So we all knew this was out here. So it's, you know, it's kind of my job to invent stuff and take shots. Most of them don't come to fruition. There's that old thing like you can, go, you can fail 7 out of 10 times in baseball and go to the Hall of Fame. You can fail 97 out of 100 times in, in Hollywood and still go to the Hall of Fame. I mean, you just got to take your shots. But um, this was obviously a long shot, but a worthwhile shot. The NBA clearly had this footage, would love to have seen it, wanted to see it be exploited. And, and as soon as Michael was in, we were able to put together a partnership between the, the three entities, our, our production company, NBA Entertainment, and, uh, and Jordan's team. Very nice. I'm guessing that wasn't too tough a call. The <laughs> tough part was getting Michael on board. Once you had him on board, I'm guessing the NBA and NBA Entertainment were go. oh, You're yeah, right, we'll sir. partner with you. You're right, sir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but you know what? When, he, when, he sat, when we really knew it was happening is when we sat, he sat in that chair, and the director, Jason Hare, who did a great job, thoroughly prepared. You know, we were, we were ready for anything, and we saw right away – um, that Michael was leaning in, he wasn't dodging anything, nothing was off limits. There, there was a seminal moment, if I may, which you guys might remember from the first episode, when Jason reads a quote about the, 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 the Chicago Bulls in 84, Michael's rookie year, and he goes, uh, they were called the, cocaine, the flying cocaine circus. Oh, yeah. Right? And Michael cracks up, and you realize it's genuine, and he's actually never heard that expression before. Now, you know, old Michael maybe during his playing days when he's got, you know, 40 reporters crowded around him after a game would laugh about it and say, ah, no. But this Michael sat there and kind of read chapter and verse what that room looked like, right, when he walked into the hotel room. So I think there was a moment there where we all said, he is really, he's really in. When Michael's in, he's in. 
Craig Hodges wasn't happy with it, but it was a great part of the tale, I can guarantee you that. Mike fun. Tolan, executive producer of The Last Dance, our guest here on CBS Sports Radio. All right, so you get Michael's okay. NBA Entertainment says it's your project. Run with it. Let's get this thing going. How did the partnership with ESPN come into play? I think the, the feeling was let's maximize everybody's going to say maximize dollars, obviously money. We always say it's not about the money, but it's about the money. Um, this was really the case, though, of maximizing exposure, um, different kinds of audiences. Okay, so ESPN is the self-described worldwide leader. There's no question they are the, the primary purveyor of sports entertainment in the U.S. And Netflix has to claim that honor worldwide. I mean, when they put the show out, it's going to 200 countries. And, you know, if you're looking at it from a Michael Jordan perspective, he is, I mean, this is an overused expression, but he really is, was and still is a global icon. They're selling shoes in, I don't know, 75 or 100 countries. Um, They're looking for people who never saw Michael play, but they're buying his shoes, cord cutters, people who maybe don't have cable, so, you know, the NBA is comfortable with ESPN as one of its primary broadcast partners. Um, the, from a Jordan perspective, we want to get this thing out, the broadest base uh, international reach. Um, it wasn't easy because to a certain extent those two entities are competitive with, you know, digital rights and so forth. It only took a couple of years. It, it took about as long to make the deals as it did to make the show. You know, seems <laughs> fair. <laughs> All right, so if that's the case, I know that you began production and it took as long as it did, yet now we have the pandemic that kicks in and uh, someone says to you, be it either uh, Adam Silver or the president of ESPN, hey, can we pick up the pace a little bit? Because right. we'd really like to air this thing on these dates. Uh, I know it's moving up the timeline and everything. How did that all play out? Well, everybody said it to, to everybody else, right? So it's, uh, it's March 11th, Rudy Gobert, right? He's the, 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 father, <laughs> the father of the shutdown. No, Adam, Adam gets the, the diagnosis. Uh, two Utah Jazz guys test positive. March 11th, he shuts down the NBA. The Final Four is not going to happen first in front of fans and then not at all. By Friday the 13th, um, everything we're doing in production is being shut down. By Monday, March 16th, we have a five, well, six-way call, really. You've got Jump Inc., which is the Jordan team, the NBA Entertainment, Mandalay Sports Media, me and my team, um, ESPN and the bosses there, Netflix, their executives, and, of course, Jason Hare and the edit team figuring out what's actually feasible. So it's March 16th. We're due to premiere on June 2nd, right? So we've got two and a half months, we think, and they would like to air it in a month. And then it just became kind of a math problem. It's like, look at the shows that aren't finished. We were, we were pretty much through six episodes, had four episodes, the two you're seeing tonight and the two from next week that were in various stages. Um, some were really early, seven and eight. We at least had kind of rough cuts. Um, and so it was really up to Jason to go back with his team of five editors um, and figure out, A, how are we going to do this thing? In uh, sorry, we got some dogs who are celebrating Mother's Day out here on the West Good Coast. For them. Um, how uh, how are we going to migrate the materials from an office to a shelter-in-place environment? We ended up having six different locations where the film was being cut, and they had to communicate digitally. Um, and how long is it going to take? We had kind of a checkerboard, you know, picture, graphics, music, color correction, everything, and it, and it was determined that we really wouldn't finish the last couple till the middle of May. 
Okay, so if we're back timing from the middle of May and we want to have at least a couple shows a week, uh, we start April 19th, we go to May 17th, two a week. Um, seems like it's kind of working out. And you cannot tell one iota that you guys have finished up what you finished up under the circumstances that the country is in right thanks, now. It's thanks, been Jim, that, Mac. That's, that's my pleasure. Nice to hear. Um, I really appreciate it. Two technical aspects. Uh, one technical aspect, then I want a very specific question about content. Technical. For any of those who did up-to-date interviews, guys you've spoken to in the last, say, six months right. or somewhere there, but whenever it, it officially came to plan that this is a go, are people still being paid for this? I know yeah. you're doing your services, but Jordan or Jackson or anyone else, is anyone getting payment after uh, the fact? No, sir. Uh, it's a, uh, 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 there's, a, there's an expression, MFN, which stands for Most Favored Nations, which means you pay everybody the same. So if right. you start by paying somebody zero, you've got to keep paying everybody the same, which is zero. Uh, so nobody. There are 105 interviews outside of Michael, and nobody made a cent. Um, some of them we had to travel, and we paid their expenses. Most of them we traveled to. Actually, the last interview just under the gun when the world was shutting down, and, of course, Washington State was – kind of a hot, uh, a hot zone, early um, big numbers for uh, the virus. And we had to get somebody from the jazz. We, we couldn't quite get Carl Malone. Um, we wanted John Stockton, and he said, yeah, and we had to fly out there in, like, in, in April already. I mean, it was right in the middle of it. So we got somebody local to, to, to do it, and John was great. And you see him, you've seen him, or eh, you haven't seen him yet, but you'll see him in the last couple episodes. Um, and uh, other than that, um, you know, the, the crew's getting paid, um, and right. they'll be working right up, as I said, till the middle of May. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, could ask, I could do 20 minutes on Jerry Krause by himself. I'll ask you one Jerry Krause question, but we'll okay. hold off on that. Jerry Reinstorf first. This is one thing in watching it. I, uh, if I haven't uh, sucked up enough here, I think it's been great. I think you guys did an unbelievable job, and I can't say I enjoyed it enough. But one thing I've said here on the air, I throw my BS flag on. The story of Scottie Pippen and his contract. Yep. Jerry Reinsdorf stated that he told Scottie, I don't think you should sign this contract. It's too long. And the way it was laid out, sliced, cut... Uh, edited, however you want to say it, made it sound like he made that statement to Scotty before Scotty signed. I'm I sorry, that. I can't believe that. As not, you may or may not know, my father is an executive in professional sports, was a general manager of the Mets, the Cardinals, and the Tigers. I just don't believe that. Why I don't not? believe why not, Jerry? that Jerry. Why not, Jody? Well, I, 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 I do, so I want to know why you don't. Well, then why didn't he tell his general manager, no, I won't approve this contract? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, I, I'm going to use a, a big word, avuncular. I, when I look at Jerry Reinsdorf, I see an avuncular guy. It means like what it sounds. He's like Uncle Jerry. He's a benevolent leader. Um, he's a businessman. He's pragmatic, but he's also got a big heart. I know Jerry pretty well. I like him very much. Okay, so I'm biased. I admit it. But you can sit there with a guy who's an employee and say, uh, this is all I can offer you based on the market value right now. If you're looking for seven years, it's an $18 million deal. That's what, that's what Jerry has pegged it at. That's what, that's, that's what we think is fair value because we're giving you security in lieu of top dollars per year. I think 
you're going to end up leaving money on the table because we see the NBA is going the right direction. It's about to explode. Probably didn't expect it to do so as much as it did. But you're going to regret this in a few years, and don't come back to me. But as Scotty said, he had two uh, people in wheelchairs at home, and he couldn't afford to take the risk. By the way, let's just make it clear so we don't exert too much sympathy. At the end of the day, Scotty made more money from his NBA career than Michael. He left the Bulls after 98. He signed a big deal with Houston. They signed a $50 million deal with Portland, came back to the Bulls, ended up making over $100 million in salaries from his NBA career. Understood. And I wasn't trying to throw a pity party for Scotty Pippen. I'm sorry. Yeah, as avuncular as he may be, I, I still Jerry don't. A, uh, I, I think Jerry's a truth teller. Um, you know, he's been challenged on a couple of other levels. You know, why didn't he keep them together after 90, 97, 98? You can, you can hear what he says for yourself next week after, uh, okay. you know, after they win their sixth title. Um, I, uh, I believe him. I think he's a straight shooter. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll do, agree to disagree on that one. That's okay. good. Um, Jerry Krause's famous quote of championships aren't won by players and coaches. They're won by organizations, which he then said was somewhat taken out of context. Even if you believe it was taken out of some context, still uh, at, at its new and reformed uh, quote, according to Krause, is still woefully wrong and inaccurate right. and misstated. Um, to and a good way to alienate your players, one of whom happens to be the greatest player on the planet. Exactly. And I'm sure at some point he regrets the way that he put it out. Uh, the story is what it is. It's now all written. He made the moves that he made, both good and bad. What do you believe most Chicago Bulls fans think of Jerry Krause? What is the opinion of the entire Jerry Krause era of a Bulls fan who was a fan back before Michael ever showed up? Great question. I think it's a split vote. And what's more interesting to me is how will that opinion shift after this documentary series? And there's still a few chapters to be written. Um, I think you're going to see a little more humility and, and sympathy and support for Jerry's track record in the last few episodes. And it will come to some extent from his primary tor- tormentors, that being, of course, Michael and Scotty. Um, begrudgingly or not, you can't not acknowledge some of the pieces of the puzzle. I mean, you've probably already talked uh, on this show about it because it sounds like you've, you've dealt with the last dance before. But, like, yeah. the, draft, the draft of Scottie Pippen and, you know, draft day trade for Olden Polynese, Polynes, going to get Dennis Rodman, you know, one of the architects of the, of the bad boys who, who crushed the Bulls, um, the Kukoc thing, which, of course, led to all that bad blood that we saw last week and you know in, from the dream team but still how important was he um picking up picking up Kerr picking up Horace Grant the guy's an MVP general manager who put together I mean he has to be there's nobody else I mean there are there are other people but he's the mastermind behind that dynasty um so there's got to be a certain level of respect and admiration and affection if you're a Chicago Bulls fan but a little bit begrudging because although it worked out, he fired Doug Collins when his career arc was, was only on the upswing. He, you know, he, he takes the reins out from under Phil Jackson when he's, you know, he's about to win his sixth title um, and puts Tim Floyd. I mean, devious moves, undercutting, non-diplomatic. As, as Steve Kerr, who's really one of my favorite guys uh, out of all the people that we met in this show, he just says, Jerry... 
had a little man complex and couldn't get out of his own way. I think that really says it very well. And so I think Chicago fans are probably very ambivalent. Mike, I know you got to go, and you've already given us a couple minutes, and I thank you so much for that. But I do want to get one more quickie in there. Okay. The Isaiah Dream Team thing. Uh, knew you had to know ahead of time when it aired, when it started to come up in conversation, that it would blow up. Maybe not as big as it has, that so many people have chimed in and responded and given their two cents and or their remembrances and or their absolute uh, concrete knowledge of the situation. Who is the one person? You talked to all these people. You saw the interviews on all these people. You read all the stories. Who was the most responsible person for Isaiah Thomas not being on the Dream Team? Um, well, I don't think it was Michael. I, I really don't. Um, I was not there. Um, I didn't do uh, as, as copious of research as Jason Hare, who's the one who asked all the questions. Um, we, we didn't interview everybody there, but we had Charles, we had Larry, we had Magic, um, we had Rod Thorne. Um, I'm going to say Chuck Daly because Chuck Daly was Isaiah's coach, and if somebody was going to lobby for Isaiah and say, this guy, you can't have a team called the Dream Team without a guy who even Michael says might be the second best point guard ever to play the game. Um, and I think he kind of stayed neutral. And you can speculate all you want. You can say, well, they knew Michael wouldn't play if he did play. But the fact is, they made that decision without talking to Michael. And as other guys have said, Charles, Magic, Larry, the camaraderie wouldn't have been the same. It w- yes, they would have won the gold medal anyway. But they wouldn't have won by you know 32 points a game or whatever it was. And they wouldn't have had as much fun. So I, I really think it was a collective decision. I think, and I think if, and the only way that could have been overcome is if Chuck went personally to each and every one of them and lobbied strenuously, which he didn't do. David Robinson, the latest to chime in, who said, yeah, we just it was a team that was built on chemistry, and the chemistry wouldn't have been the same. Right. Uh, Michael, I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. i got to thank you just for putting it together well, and giving us the entertainment you have during this downtime in sports. Thanks. I think it's been tremendous, and we're all looking forward to the last four episodes. Thanks, Jerry. I'm, I'm sure glad you're enjoying it, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It is our pleasure. That's Mike Tolan from uh, uh, the executive producer of The Last Dance. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.